session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next, actually Wednesday's show. Monday won't do a live show because of Persian New Year. So on next Wednesday's show, I'll talk about the book Of Sound Mind by Nina Krauss. Of Sound Mind, How Our Brain Constructs a Meaningful Sonic World. So I think it's looking at the neuroscience related to sound and how it relates to our overall perception or experience. I've done books looking more at vision or other things, so I thought it would be interesting to see what this one, or hear what this one has to say, although I'll be reading it. So, Of Sound Mind by Nina Krauss. The book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about tonight is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption. There is a, a movie with the same title based on this book, um, starring... Jamie Foxx and Michael B. Jordan. I actually have not seen the movie, wanted to possibly see it this week, but did not to, to also supplement, in a sense, my reading of the book. But um, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson is a very uh, heavy, heavy book, powerful, heartbreaking, so many different times, but I think a very meaningful one and valuable one to read to get a better understanding of some of the aspects of our legal system here in the United States that are quite unfair and unjust, and that should not be going on and happening. And um, he, he talks about his, in, his, in a way it's a memoir of Brian Stevenson, but looking at his legal work starting in law school, and then what he was getting involved with in helping individuals who really were not getting the legal defense they deserved, which of course tends to be poorer people and also people of color. And what he found as he was helping these individuals was that so many people were suffering and suffer, suffering in unfair ways. And unfortunately, as is to be expected, race played a big part in how people suffered and who suffered. And we see him helping many individuals throughout the book who were in really difficult situations, did not really have a defense or did not have an adequate defense or were unfairly charged or punished and seeing him fight for that. He's created the Equal Justice Initiative, which he talks about the development of that um, uh, program or organization where they defend people who've been either wrongly condemned or who are in, as they talk about, the furthest reaches of the criminal justice system. And a big part of the book traces the story of Walter McMillian, who was accused of a crime of murder when he seemed to have no involvement with it. It was basically based on the testimony of a few people, one of whom was trying to get out of their own uh, jail or was pressured by the, the police and investigators to give this testimony or to give this um, account that Walter was committing this 
murder that people were very upset about of this young girl who was killed at a laundromat or a dry cleaners, I should say. Um, and so Walter McMillian was framed and the testimony was really bogus. It seems crazy. The person made up a story that he had come to him uh, in his truck, basically forcing him with a gun to go in the car to say, I have to go commit a robbery, but I don't want to drive because my arm hurts. But of course, that doesn't make sense because he drove to the place where he met the man. Uh, they went, he says, he committed the murder and he came back in the car, drove him back uh, to the gas station where he met him and then left and drove off. So again, if his arm hurt so much he couldn't drive, it's uh, a wonder how he was able to do that. But the story was really, really bogus. But still, um, they essentially wanted to have someone to put the uh, murder on and he was a good candidate in that sense to have someone they could say committed the murder people were very upset that no one had been um, convicted or no one had been charged with the murder and so often there's a sense of retribution that is there that we have to make things right so often when people want to make things right they just want there to be someone who takes the blame for it even if it's an innocent person or we don't want to even think about that part but we just feel like in some way there's some type of justice the world is fair because someone has been punished for this crime and so sadly walter mcmillian was that person in this case and was then given uh was put on death row to face the death penalty and brian stevenson comes into his life and through years and really decades fights for his freedom and i don't know what people might have maybe you've seen the movie or you want to read the book you might not want spoilers but i might obviously give you some uh but the book looks at the death penalty also i might touch on that in the next segment or maybe here um and and brian stevenson is a strong advocate against the death penalty uh, citing things like many innocent people have been taken off of death row so they were uh, sentenced to death but eventually were found to actually be innocent, which tells us, sadly, that many people have been killed that would have been proven innocent or did not even commit the crime. And that's really a shame. But the, the book, as I mentioned, goes through the stories of many individuals, including actually Ian Manuel. I read his book last year, who was tried and convicted for an attempted murder or attempted robbery that ended in um, a gunshot. He shot a woman in the face. And was then, even though he was a teenager at the time, given a life sentence. And so Brian Stevenson also was fighting for the rights of many individuals, including uh, individuals who were charged as children for non-homicide crimes, but were given a life sentence. So essentially they committed a crime as children and were uh, basically told to or, or forced to live out their lives in, in prison and never have a chance. But drawing on research that shows brain development and how the frontal lobes and parts of the brain don't start developing or finish developing until really about the age of 25. This uh, issue went all the way up to the Supreme Court who eventually ruled that a child or someone who was charged as a child or committed the crime when they were a minor could not be given a life sentence for a non-homicidal crime. Um, sadly, the United States also has committed um, a capital punishment, executed many individuals who were even mentally challenged or incapacitated to some degree. And he shares some stories about people on death row in that situation. He, you know, he also talks about the, the electric chair, how many people had been executed and the horrible ways that can 
go wrong. It, I mean, it just sounds like a horrible thing anyway, but sometimes the electrodes and things not being placed right and we see people suffering and it takes many minutes. They have to do it a few times. Just incredibly inhumane. I mean, I don't know if there's a humane way to kill someone, but even more inhumane to do it in this way. Then we, you know, we do see a movement towards things like lethal injection, but there is also lots of issues with that. We tend to think, okay, lethal injection seems very peaceful in a way. We just inject the individual with some uh, chemicals or medicines or whatever it might be, and the person dies in a painless way. But we actually see that that is not the case at all, that individuals do not um, die painlessly and lots of things go wrong there as well. Because of the Hippocratic Oath, doctors cannot perform lethal injection because it would be harming an individual and they're not supposed to do that based on that oath that they've taken. So it's often staff from um, the, the correctional facility. And so there's cases where one of them, because of this individual had extensive drug use in earlier years, it was hard to find an artery or a vein to place the needle. And they were saying they were just going to open up a gash on his leg to find a vein and just, you know, do it that way. And so quite horrible the way individuals are treated in general in the uh, prison system. But we see with the, the death penalty executions, again, it's not going to be humane, I think, to kill anyone, but it's done in a very inhumane way. And so, again, we trace the story or we see Walter McMillian in the most detail throughout the book. He shares many stories that are heartbreaking of individuals who have been convicted of crimes. Sometimes they were innocent. Sometimes the punishments seem very severe. Again, race and class play a big part when we look at our justice system. Uh, for example, with the death penalty, many more individuals who are black have been on death row based on the proportion of the population. Also, though, another, not just about the perpetrators, but based on the victim of the crime. If the victim of the murder was white, an individual is far more likely to be given the death penalty than if the victim was black. So again, we see it from the other end of it, who the victim is, not just the one perpetrating. Um, there is this sense that it's worse based on what the justice system is showing us if a white person was killed. So clearly we see racism there, which has been shown statistically and brought to the Supreme Court's attention. So we do see race and class, which uh, that unfortunately in the United States overlaps, playing a big part in the type of treatment people receive. And so when we think of a justice system, if it is fair and just, when we think of that image of, I don't know if it's Lady Justice, but you maybe have seen it where she has scale in her hands, but a blindfold on, which means that the justice is supposed to be blind in that sense, not to be swayed by factors that should not matter. But we see that's not at all the case in the United States, where if you are, as they, uh, I heard Brian Stevens say, rich, and he says it in the book, and I heard him saying it somewhere else, rich and uh, guilty, you're better off than if you are poor and innocent in the United States. And people who have money to fight their cases are much likely to get off, but especially not to get the harshest punishments. Uh, the people who end up on death row are most likely going to be poor and also black, because if you don't have a good uh, lawyer to defend you, 
you are likely to end up uh, to get the worst consequences. And so that's what we see. And he shares these stories in the book where individuals were given uh, very, very poor test uh, legal counsel. Sometimes a trial would last a day for a murder case, and the lawyers won't even make a closing statement, really just almost no effort is being put in when we're talking about someone's life. And so that's what Brian Stevenson has been fighting for, is to give defense and a voice to these individuals who are not given that type of a, a defense. So I, I think he is a remarkable man who's done great work and continues to do so. Uh, you probably have seen him. He's he's done a lot of uh, work for um, people's rights and, and uh, someone that I think very much admirable and I was very proud um, of, of the work he's doing and, and really impressed by it. And so in this book, we, we can see this heartbreaking account of Walter McMillian. And I did say spoiler, eventually he does get out after decades of being in jail um, and on death row. He finally does get out. And so we might think, okay, well, see, the system works. And that's what some people like to think. And we do have this tendency, almost a need, and there's a psychological concept of a need for a just world. This sense that everything does happen for a reason. So if someone gets punished, then it must be fair. Or even this leads to victim blaming. If someone got hurt, uh, killed, raped, whatever it is, in some way they probably asked for it or did something stupid or were not responsible. So you'll hear people say, oh, this woman was jogging and then was attacked. Uh, like, oh, she was jogging at night. That's horrible. And it's like, okay, well, uh, you know, or we blame her in some way, but people do those types of things all the time. We've been in worse situations ourselves. So you should notice that we do have this tendency because it feels uneasy when I tell you things are unfair in the ju judicial system here in the United States, that it's racist, that it's classist. Uh, you probably don't feel very good about that, and you shouldn't because it's unfair and it's not right. And especially we'd like to think that our systems of government, our systems of justice, the legal system is going to be a fair one. It's just so whatever the determinations and the decisions that are being made, there's some justice there. And it's not to say it's all bad, but that we should recognize that it's very imperfect and there's lots of work that, that has to be done. So Walter McMillian, first of all, is in on death row for many years. What he experiences there is horrible. The pains that he goes through, seeing people get executed or seeing them leave. And he, you know, he was saying they could smell sometimes the flesh burn from where they were. Imagine how horrific that is just as an experience, but then to know that that could be your fate or you're on death row and that is essentially what you should expect to be your fate and all the legal challenges and hurdles. And finally, he gets released, uh, but he's very happy. And if you, you can actually watch the videos online of him as he's released and coming out of jail and Brian Stevenson is there and he looks so happy and it's also heartbreaking, but uh, uplifting to see him getting out and family there and they're so happy to see him. And of course, we'd like to say it's a happy ending, but you do see that he doesn't come out unaffected by what happened. Um, the, all those years clearly had an impact on him. And as Brian Stevenson shares the story after his release, he tried to start his own business and he was getting involved, but he, he seemed to quickly or over a short amount of time start to deteriorate and he wasn't doing well. You can only We can only imagine what it's like to be in in jail and death on death row for a long time, uh, it's going to take a toll. Traumatized individual puts you in, in certain mindset and experiences 
that will be difficult to recover from. So I know sometimes we say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think that quote has a lot of value, but we have to be careful because at times what people go through, it didn't kill them. So he was on death row to be killed essentially by the government, by the state, but he was not. But it doesn't mean that just because he wasn't killed, he made it, it made him stronger. It clearly seemed to have made him weaker or damaged or broken in some ways because of that. We can't expect people not to be affected by that. So um, in that way, it was uplifting. I, it was inspiring to see Brian Stevenson. What he did was uplifting. I was saying in the sense that Walter McMillian finally received the justice of being released after many years of being in prison. But it's not to say that no harm was done and so that everything was okay. So it's a there's uplifting parts of the book, but mostly it's about pain and, and heartbreak and injustice and how there's so much work to be done in our country to get closer to a fair justice system that's equal and fair for all, not just for some. And so after the break, I want to continue on some of these themes related to punishment and how we punish in the United States and what I think we, we can do better and some thoughts also on the death penalty as well. So the book, again, is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Let's go to our first commercial break. Welcome back. So I wanted to continue on some themes related to the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. As I mentioned, I want to talk about punishment, and especially when we look at the legal forms of punishment that we have, and an understanding of why we even have these types of systems or why it would exist things like prisons or jails. So uh, in the United States, we've seen a huge increase, explosion of the jail population. I know it's over 3 million. I don't know what it is now, but I've seen that statistic from a few years ago. So in a country of just over 300 million, 3 million, so that would be more than 1% of adults um, would be in jail. I'm not sure exactly the percentage and the proportion there. And so we might wonder, why is that the case or why would we do it in this way? So to begin with, I wanted to share some of the legal reasons that have been given or purposes when we look at punishment, the different ways we can look at it. So one is deterrence. So basically, to deter people from committing crimes, we have to have a, a punishment. So there's a sometimes a specific deterrence means that individual, if they get punished, is less likely to then reoffend or do something that would be harmful to others or society, but then also a general deterrence, just knowing that there's a punishment can affect the public in that way. We also have incapacitation. So people who might be likely to commit crimes again, we're removing them. So this is what prison is about, is to put someone away so they can no longer hurt people. And the most extreme would be death penalty would be to to take the person's life, to kill them. Also rehabilitation, meaning trying to help an individual who has committed the crime or has done the criminal behavior to alter their behavior uh, so that they can be more contributing individuals uh, for society. And this would hopefully reduce uh, or lead to reducing recidivism or people reoffending, right? So if we help people deal with whatever it was that led to them creating, uh, you know, committing the crime that they committed, they're less likely to do it. So it seems like a win-win. However, we do see in the U.S. prison system rehabilitation, although it might be in the name at times, is very a very small part of what we see happening. There's also retribution. I mentioned that in the last segment, but this way of 
making things feel fair. So if there are victims to the crime or victim victim's family, they feel like there is some sense of justice or just deserts that the individual is being punished. So it takes away the need for personal avengement or like a vigilante type justice where we have to make things right or the, the victims might feel like they have to make it right because the government is is taking care of that. And then restitution could also be part of it, which is a financial way of punishing the person who has committed the crime, uh, so which might make it less likely for there to be um, something that happens later. This also can include things like, let's say, parking fines and things like that, but more serious things um, as well. So we see that there's different reasons to have punishments in a society, legal reasons that are are given. If we look at the United States, we do get the sense incapacitation. Uh, incapacitation. Am I saying that right? Incapacitation? Anyway, uh, seems to be a big part of that or making it so that someone is removed from society and can no longer commit some kind of a crime. We also see what we think of as deterrence as being part of that. Now, when you look at the U.S. jail and prison system, we see that people are treated horribly, really, really bad. And for many people, they say, yeah, well, they should get treated that way. They were, they're criminals. They did this really bad thing, so we should treat them bad. But for me, what we want to look at when we uh, are, are looking at how we treat individuals is what are we reflecting of ourselves as a society by how we treat anyone and everyone that we treat in whatever we do. And so this relates to the death penalty for sure, but also how we treat individuals when they are imprisoned, when they are taken away from society in some way. We've essentially accepted here in the United States that it should be this really horrible place, violent place. Uh, in this book, Just Mercy, he talks about the horrible treatment of guards in women uh, facilities, women being sexually assaulted and raped by the guards was very common and happening a lot. So we essentially assume that it should be that way, almost like it makes sense. But but why should it be that way? Why does it have to be that way? You look at some countries uh, in, in Europe, Scandinavian countries, where people will be punished. They might be removed from society, but the prison doesn't have this horrible um, type of experience for the individuals there. They are removed. They don't want to be there. They'd rather be part of society, but they are not being put into this horrible situation and condition. Things in the United States that we have, like solitary confinement, to me are absolutely torture and, and cruel and unusual punishment would be considered ways of abusing individuals in a mental way. Also physically, at times they're very confining, but uh, emotionally or psychologically, to be in solitary confinement is a horrible thing to put someone through and should be considered a human rights violation and there's movements for that. Uh, but people accepted that or think that it makes sense to do that or we have to punish in this way if the inmate is acting up to help or in some way make things better. But these things don't help and don't make things better, but we accept them to be that way. So I first question just this mentality that we can have in the United States that punishing and making jail this horrible place is somehow a, a good thing. Yes, people don't like to go there, uh, but they wouldn't like to be removed from, from society anyway. So if you want to use that incapacitation part, you don't need to make it so horrific. It does not seem to make a difference. And that brings us also to deterrence. So, of course, we, we know that if there's no punishment, there possibly are more people that would commit crimes. 
um, but how much and in what way. And so the death penalty is often used as, uh, or one of the justifications for it is that it's going to deter people from committing crimes, from committing murder. But what they find decades of research has found that it doesn't make it less likely or does not reduce the crime rate. It does not make it that we deter people if we are going to have a death penalty. And so for the other reasons I was saying how many times people who are innocent are put on death row. And so we think about why should we put people to death if we might even be wrong um, about it. So we can see that there's lots of reasons, including that one, not to put someone to death. I also think going back to what I was saying before, looking at how we as a society treat individuals, it, it makes you wonder, and he, he talks about it in the book, do we have the right to kill someone as a society, as the as a state or as people to kill someone? Is that somehow helping how we feel and are as a community? And my feeling is no, that is not making us more humane. It does not make us better to kill someone, kill one of our own citizens. I don't think that it is actually something that is good. And I hope that we continue to move away from that. Some states have moved to ban the death penalty, but it still does happen. And so it does come partially, I think, from this reaction that we are angry and hurt when someone does something bad. And also that it's going to make it, again, that we are safer. But it doesn't. So if we kill people who we think are bad, it doesn't protect us. If you want to remove them from society, that's one thing. But why must you kill someone? How is that going to make you any better or safer? It doesn't seem to do that. Uh, we also think that it makes us seem tougher, that we're stronger if we're punishing people in some harsher way. But we don't become better when we become harsher. We don't become uh, more likely to have a better society when we're harsher to individuals, whether it's the de death penalty or the way we treat people who have gone to, to prison. In the book, I, I heard, and I've also heard Brian Stevenson say, we don't want to judge anyone by the worst thing they've ever done. If you think about yourself, if I think about myself, if you think of the worst thing or the worst things that you were, have ever done, and if we judge your whole character or your whole life based on those things, I think pretty much everyone would be judged very unfavorably and would be seen in a, a negative way. But we are more complex than that and we are more complete than that. We've done many good things as well, including that bad. But we often treat individuals who have been punished in the legal system as just that one action defines all of who they are and who they are completely. Even as I was talking about in the last segment, treating children as hopeless cases, that a child of the age of 13 has committed some crime and they are just hopeless. And so they were given life sentences. And so if we think of a 13-year-old committing some kind of crime, we can be fairly certain it's not just some random thing or this child is bad or evil inherently. It's always going to be related to things that they are experiencing. And that's what we see, that often they're dealing with poverty, abuse, uh, exposure to violence and aggression and living in certain situations that make it much more likely for the crime to happen. So often what we do is we blame the individuals rather than the system rather than recognizing that when you have extremes of poverty and you have 
extreme poverty, it's more likely to lead to violence, and you have areas where this is happening, well, of course, there's going to be more crime that takes place as well. It happens in affluent areas also, but it's going to happen more in those types of areas. But rather than focus on the, the system, focus on the issues, the bigger things that are going, we blame these individuals. We saw this in the 90s where we were being told of this threat of super predators, these kids and teens and young adults who were just going to be so harmful and not care about anyone based on things that were going on in, in certain communities, and we had to be on the lookout for them. And so this sparked this uh, notion of harsher punishment, so we have to make sure we get these kids off the streets or these teens off the streets before they, they kill and do the horrible things they're going to do. And it appears very clear that there was no such thing as this super predator threat that we were worried about, but the reaction still happened and people were punished based on that. So I hope we can focus more on the root of what's going on and the root of the problem, which is that there are bad things going on, not because there's bad kids or bad people, but more because there's um, inefficiencies and inequalities and needs and rights that are not being taken care of that lead to these types of things becoming more likely. If a child is committing a crime at the age of 12 or 13, we should be more worried about the system that's going on than this is a bad kid and we have to, to get rid of that kid. And even um, people at times have been in favor of the death penalty for, for children. It talks about in the book, teenagers committing crimes and being uh, put on death row, tried as adults and put on death row. So these are things that I, I hope we would see as unacceptable. And when we look at punishment in general in the prison system, we can think of what's best for society overall. Yes, we want some level of deterrence there and retribution. It, it is fair for there to be some type of a punishment that takes place. But making it harsher doesn't help the situation, and it's just hurting those people to make it less likely that they are going to be able to contribute to society in any way in the future. I won't get into the prison industrial complex, but we do see this huge proliferation of prisons in the United States over the past few decades that became these huge profit-making machines and businesses. And so, of course, if you're building all these prisons, you need people in them to justify that and also to pay for it. So we see lobbying that happened that made crimes more likely to be committed or harsher punishments just so we'd have more people in jail, which is a really, really sad and heartbreaking and um, maddening situation to have where we are making people a product by becoming prisoners. And of course, then we also have their labor being used. I mentioned this a few weeks ago um, and how the word is passed, um, that people then are used for being paid pennies or less than a dollar an hour to work. Again, a new type of slavery is in place. Um, and another way of making money for the people that use that. So we see this horrific system that's not so far removed by from slavery. I know there's a book called Slavery by another name about something else, but this is a similar type of thing that we are seeing. So yes, it's very easy to talk about the system, and I know I'm doing that, but I hope we can all become more aware and recognize that the problems we have here in the United States when it comes to things like the prison system, it's not because we have bad people. When If we think of... Um, or more bad people or more people that are criminals. If you have more people in jail in the United States than some other country, why do we think that is? 
Is it because there's more bad people or criminal individuals here than some other country? Or is it the legal system that we've set up and also the inequalities that are there and the racism that is there that is more likely to put certain people in jail and more people in jail? It's similar to when I hear people talk about homelessness and they say, well, you know, sometimes people want to be homeless or there's this or that reason why we have more homeless people. Another way that we try to justify what we see a need for a just world rather than thinking, well, if we have more homeless people in the United States than some other uh, similar country from an economic background, do we think it's just because there's more Americans that want to be homeless, for example, or it's something in the system that's leading to that? So... Um, when I think of the system we have here and the prison system we have here, there's a lot of injustice in our justice system that we see in various aspects, something that we want to be aware of and to see what we can do to fight for more of that justice. And so that's why I would highly recommend you read this book, Just Mercy, by Brian Stevenson to get some insights into some of the ways that, that those injustices still persist in our legal system here in the United States. Okay, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the last segment, I wanted to talk about how we can stay connected to the world, but take care of ourselves as well. And so in this book that I was talking about, as I read it, I was heartbroken many times, got very sad, had tears in my eyes reading different parts of the book, and it was was heartbreaking. But I'm also very grateful and happy that I read it to be better informed about what's going on in the country I live in and, and to certain individuals who are the most vulnerable and the ways that we have justice and injustice in our systems here. And so it, it made me think about how we have to balance. And one of the things I, I recognize more and more as I look at uh, our psychology, our mental health, our well-being is how many different types of ways we have to find balance. That it's not just about do it this way always or do it that way. Usually most things require balance and balance means that we have to continually be in touch with ourselves, have that self-awareness. It's like you're taking steps on a tightrope so you don't just achieve balance and you're done. You continually have to maintain, uh, pay attention and, 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 and try to rebalance and refocus to keep that balance going. And so one of the balancing acts or another one of them is staying connected to the world and taking care of ourselves. So sadly, we have seen heartbreaking images coming out of Ukraine, of the individuals there after the attacks and the invasion by Russia that are just heartbreaking. And so the first days, and still uh, I'm seeing images, but I remember those first days there was really a flooding and you wanted to stay, I wanted to stay informed. And so I wanted to, to see as many things as I could, but I had to also stop at times. It was overwhelming and I was finding myself getting very saddened and heartbroken by it to the point where it was affecting me. And so it's tough because we say, well, how can I look away when people are suffering? Uh, but also I can't take it at some point. It becomes too much. And I don't think, again, there's this easy black or white way of don't look at all or look at everything. It's finding that balance for yourself that we... I think if you, uh, I'm forgetting who even said the quote and exactly the quote, but to be connected to the world means that you will be saddened by it at times. And there is a lot of sadness and injustice. And so to begin with, I think that's an important starting point that as a general state of mind, something I talk a lot about on the show is this tendency we have to go away from negative feelings or feelings that don't feel good. 
and it is a essentially natural or human a biological bias to go away from things that feel bad. That's why they're there. Something feels bad, you feel you need to go away from it. But unfortunately, what it leads to us doing is we avoid problems and things that are really there. It's not just the feeling that's the problem, it's that what is that feeling telling us? So if something makes you sad that someone said, pretending like you're not sad, masking the feeling, taking something, whatever it is, distracting yourself in some way, doesn't take away from what was said, and especially if it's an ongoing relationship, it'll still be there. So it's not that we're supposed to go away from the feeling, we're supposed to actually get rid of the thing or fix the thing that's causing the feeling. But unfortunately, we just run away from the feelings. And so what we do is people often think, well, if something feels bad, I shouldn't do it, I shouldn't face it, I shouldn't experience it. And so they don't want to face anything negative in their own lives and feel those negative things. And also when they look at the world, they don't want to see any of the negative. They don't want to feel that hurt and that pain. And so they might avoid it altogether, or they'll justify it in some way. I was explaining this before, looking at people who have committed crimes or been the victim of a crime, people will blame both sides. Well, the criminal, of course, they're a bad person, and the victim, well, they somehow asked for it, weren't smart, made a stupid decision, should have gotten out of it, I wouldn't have let that happen to me, all sorts of ways that we try to protect ourselves from feeling bad for that person and having to stay, stay and sit with that bad feeling. So to be a healthy individual, we have to actually embrace, face, and take in our negative feelings. And to be a participating citizen and a caring citizen of humanity, you also have to do the same thing. Pay attention to what's going on. Now, one thing I'll also add is that I think it's very important to pay attention and to see what's happening in the world while recognizing that as much as you look at what's going on in the world, unfortunately, there is so much sadness and injustice that happens that you will only ever know a fraction of what's going on or all the people who are suffering in a variety of ways. And so uh, I say this because uh, at times this is something that comes up in woke types of conversations where it's like, well, did you know about the so-and-so people who are suffering here or the this that's happening or the effect of you know your clothes or the effect of this or water or global warming? And there's this way of saying it like, I know and you don't know because I know things and almost essentially saying I know all the things that are happening that are bad or unjust and you don't. And so it's competitive. And I, I've talked about this recently of how the way we look at wokeness, if you're looking at it as a label and to get some kind of status, then it's really not about the people or the issues you care about. It's about yourself. But if it's really about people who are suffering or something that's wrong in the world and you care about it, then your focus is less about what you look like by feeling or thinking or knowing something and more about the issue itself. So you likely will be doing it more quietly. You might spread awareness, but the awareness will be about the issue, not about look at me spreading the awareness. So a little detour there, but but coming back um, to this issue of being aware of things, sadly, as I said, you won't know because there's so many people, of course, individuals have all their own pains and struggles and things that they experience, but even groups of individuals and people and different issues that are going on in the world, you won't know about most of the things that are happening. And so we have to accept that too, that there's a FOMO about... Um, good things that you can experience, good times and things like that. But there's also a way like a FOMO of what you won't know about what's going on in the world, that you, of course, will only know about some things. And we can only do so much, so that can make sense. You don't need to know about everything because you can't do something about everything. But you want to stay informed to see what you can 
possibly do and then take those things on. So we we want to stay connected. We want to know what's happening. We shouldn't turn away. We shouldn't just give in quickly to that impulse that if something feels bad, go away from it and look away from it. We want to try to remember that, yes, you want to look away from just seeing what's happening. Imagine the people who are experience it, experiencing it. So when you read a book like Just Mercy, it can be painful to think about what's going on with these people who are in prisons and might have been given an unfair punishment or even were completely innocent but have been in jail. And we want to look away, or if you keep looking, you might come up with reasons, say, well, maybe it's okay, or they probably did something wrong, or find some silver lining. But I hope you'll sit with that uncomfortable feeling that it just seems like it's something unfair, and that is sad. And I should do something about it if I can, What and find what you can do. Because that's what those feelings are valuable for, is you don't feel good and it makes you want to act. If you get rid of the feeling, you won't want to act. So hopefully you will sit with that feeling. As I was saying before, the feeling and its badness makes us want to go away from the feeling, but if we can stay with it, we can actually go towards the bad thing and not just avoid the bad feeling. So we have to stay connected in that way, but I do want to acknowledge the other side that you can get overwhelmed. And it's very easy to go down a rabbit hole of bad news and see every image that's coming, let's say in this situation from Ukraine, and let's see every single post about it, every single person writing something about it, every video, every picture, and it's going to take a toll on you. First of all, just the time of it will take away from likely responsibilities and things you need to do, but also the emotional toll will make it harder for you to keep going and function and do certain things. And so it's important to pay attention to that. So ask yourself, am I really getting more informed by looking at these things or am I just going down this rabbit hole that might be just hard to stop? We've all been there on social media or YouTube where you just keep watching things. You're, uh, you know, sometimes you'll hear terms also like doom scrolling, which would definitely apply here, but you're just scrolling through and don't stop yourself from just watching a video and the next video. And you watch this one, it gives you another one to watch. And, and we keep going on and on and, and, and don't stop ourselves in a compulsive way. And it can be important to check in. This is why uh, self-awareness can be so important when we're talking about this balancing act. Check in with yourself. How am I doing? How am I feeling? If you're feeling really tense, feeling really sad, feeling really heartbroken, see what you can do. First, taking care of yourself. Also, going back to what I was saying before, is there some kind of action you can take? Unfortunately, what we often do is we just have the bad feelings and we just sit with them. Often we can't do something, but if you can, see how you can get involved. And people will post ways that you can get involved with helping with whatever the issue is so you can turn those feelings into actions. It's much better to see if you can do something about that feeling. Yes, if you make some small donation, it might make you feel better, but you also know it's not going to really change so much. Hopefully everyone does their part with whatever the issue is, but it's not going to necessarily, your donation is not going to change too much of it, but you might feel a little bit better not to just uh, fool yourself or to make yourself feel good, but see if you can turn that into some kind of action. But you do need to check in with yourself and see how you are doing. I always see this happening with clients of mine, uh, people in general, whatever situation, a new thing that comes up in the news, especially if it's something sad, something like this, with the, the war in Ukraine where we see so many people suffering, and then people will just really go deep into it. And it's 
uh, becomes an obsessive type of thing, and they only are focused on that and can lose sight of other things. And it's almost the only thing that can matter to them. And so some people are more susceptible to becoming obsessive about things. So that's another thing when we talk about self-awareness, there's the moment-to-moment self-awareness, which is critical. There's also the general self-awareness of understanding yourself better. So you might learn, you know what, when there is some big world issue or something going on like this, I know I can go into it too deep. So it might be important for me to stop or set some limits for myself that I can only watch this many minutes, uh, you know, in the morning or this many minutes at this time or whatever it might be. Or for many of us, the nighttime becomes this easy way to just slip into, you know, what might feel like minutes turning into hours of searching or looking at things. So it might be even more important to set the limits at nighttime if you learn about yourself and that that's what you tend to do to make sure you don't spend hours looking at this type of news that over time is not just informing you, it's really just steeping you deeper and deeper into a state of mind or a feeling about what's going on. So you're not necessarily learning more, you're just putting yourself in a worse place. So we do have to find that balance for ourselves, staying informed, but also staying okay and making sure when we talk about self-care or self-awareness that we're dealing with it okay. I do think that if we are to be caring citizens of this world, we have to be saddened by the world sometimes. There's really no way around it because there is suffering, there is injustice that is going on that is just unfair. We don't want to just smooth it over and justify it in some way. So that is going to happen. And I think it's important to stay informed to a degree. And then at the other hand, it's to a degree. So we don't go so deep into it that we lose ourselves or lose how we're feeling or can't take care of ourselves over time because of what we are seeing. And also I'll end on this note. Yes, I think the people of Ukraine deserve the world's help, and I hope that they are given that in a variety of ways, from the refugees of all colors to be given refuge, uh, but also for the war to end in whatever way that can happen. But I also invite you to see what you can do for people close to you. By close, I mean in proximity, geographical distance. Help in a variety of ways, give money, do things. But there's people suffering close to you, no matter where you are in this world. It's one of those sad facts that it's still happening. Here in the United States, I'm right now in Los Angeles, not very many miles away. There's many homeless people. There's homeless people or individuals experiencing homelessness close by, but there's many people experiencing it in certain areas like Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. So see what you can do or how you can help people close to you as well. Sometimes we just look at a problem far away and say, I wish I could help, but we usually can help and do something for people closer to us. And I hope you will take that action. Use that negative feeling that comes up when you see people suffering and see if you can reduce the suffering of even just one person. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful night. 